Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, Richard. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm fine. I'm getting my head around the new tiers rules. <laughs> Exciting, isn't it? It is, yeah. We, as we far as nice... I understand it, if you're in tier two, you can only, if you're going to offer a lucrative government contract to a Conservative Party donor, you can now only do it outside. <laughs> And I think pubs in pubs in tier, if I'm right, pubs in tier three can can they can stay open, but they have to serve either chlorinated chicken or hormone uh, hormone injected beef. <laughs> I think just as just as I walked in, there has been some announcements of uh, new areas that are going into tier two. London is in tier two, which now, includes yeah. London, and of course. It's not really very serious until it happens in London. So exactly. now, now it's serious. Um, York uh, is one of the other places, and there's there's others as well. Of course, this almighty row is going on with with Manchester. Um, even talk of legal action, and it's uh, it's all kicking off. And what that proves is that, and I know a lot of you only get your news from us, dear listener, but it's probably worth checking out the new European website as well. Um, as the days go by, because you never know when you might be in the top tier or indeed the bottom tier. I'm not sure which way up is which anymore. Um, But uh, we will do some news. Then we're going to be joined by pollster, political commentator, election addict, uh, Peter Kellner, which is exciting, Steve, isn't it? It is very exciting, yes. We'll be talking to talking to him about all kinds of things from Keir Starmer to the US election, I, I would presume. And uh, and then, of course, we will, as ever, crown a Brexiteer of the week. Um, but Steve, firstly, the news, what's caught your eye this week? Well, I think we were expecting to do this podcast, weren't we? Um, we were expecting to, to announce that we were headed for no deal because uh, Boris Johnson had set a, a final 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 definitely won't be any later than this um deadline of of october the 15th to make significant progress with the eu or he's going to walk away from the talks and now that deadline appears to be well it appears to be at least um until uh the end of friday the 16th of october and number 10 
has uh, has said that David Frost and Michelle Barnier will be having more talks, or their certainly their underlings will be having more talks next week. So it seems that Boris Johnson he's missed more deadlines than Jeffrey Bernard and Hunter S. Thompson put <laughs> together, hasn't he? He's just um, he cannot he, he can't hit a deadline. This was um, the softest of deadlines, though. I never, ever thought that that would be the end. It was, um, you know, I said so on the pod last week, it was never going to be the end of the story, was it, um, frankly? So I'm not surprised. And I think it will run on and on and on right until December the 31st and even beyond that, frankly. Yes, I'm sure it, uh, I'm sure it will. Um, you know, we, there's not much more to add to what we said last week. There's, there's, there's good reason for... Um, intransigence on the, the well, there, there are pragmatic reasons for intransigence. In, I can't say intransigence today. There you go, intransigence. <laughs> I can't. Uh, there's there are good reasons for uh, pragmatic reasons for the EU um, trying to hold their ground. Uh, very worrying poll for Macron um, uh, the other day, and clearly he wants to be seen to be fighting for the rights of. Uh, French fishermen so that's um, you know that's that's a, a, a really difficult thing to overcome um, yeah quite we'll, we'll see we will we'll see. indeed um, Peter Kellner I guess we'll talk to him about this uh, it's poll about Scottish independence yes um, that is uh, slightly concerning isn't it for um... Ipsos Mori well I mean it's it's concerning for the people who said that Brexit would not break up the the union because yeah. 50, 58% of Scots who were polled are now saying that they would vote yes in a in a, a independence referendum and I think they were, they were also saying that something like 64% thought there should be another one within the next five years um, yeah. it's the biggest ever lead for yes that and it's not we... a surprise I have to say but it is um but it is it, it, it you know I I'm a, I'm a supporter of keeping the union together much like I was a supporter of keeping Europe together, but that said, <clears throat> excuse me. That said, I can absolutely see the reasons why. I think the reasons for for Scotland becoming independent grow stronger by the day, frankly. And I can I can see why more and more people in Scotland want that to happen. Um, uh, you yeah. know, they feel like they've been they've been conned, don't they? And I think to some to some extent they have. Yeah, I mean, it was forty one percent before the the referendum, the the Brexit referendum of twenty sixteen. Um, and you know, I mean, even well, it's I mean, it's extraordinary to think, isn't it, that um, that you know, in the nineteen nineties, there was the, the polling for yes was, well, I mean, it was, I think it was touching. Although, of course, yes, then was against a, a devolution for Scotland option as well as a, a no option. Yeah. But the polling for yes then was, I mean, some, sometimes I think in some, I'm right in saying, I think in some polls it was kind of sub 10%, although obviously devolution um, was, um, was the, the sort of the big prize then. An amazing thing that was noted by um, the comedian Frankie Boyle was that this, this poll, it, it broke it down by party and 5% of people who <laughs> voted for the SNP in 2019, said they would no, vote no in a referendum about Scottish independence. I, was, I can't really, I can't really get my head around that one. It's, Maybe it's, there were some, some very, you know, sometimes you get these hyper local issues in, well, maybe, um, in yeah. constituencies where they didn't want a phone mast or something. And maybe taxi, only, some tactical voting to keep Labour or the Tories. The out. only thing I can think of. But I bet the Queen isn't purring anymore. Um, looking at those. Um, uh, looking at those voting intentions for Scottish independence. It's her first day back at work today, the Queen. 
It is, yes. And now, she, I, I'm interested. She's gone, to, she's gone to, hasn't she gone to somewhere where they make sort of deadly toxins and yeah, stuff like yeah, that? She's gone believe. to Port and Down. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, she's a gay old girl, bless her. But I wonder if, has she, was she officially furloughed? And does that mean she's only been getting 80% of the <laughs> of the money that that we give her without actually being given the choice as to whether we give it to her or not? But that's another another, <laughs> another query. I don't know. Has she been furloughed? Has she been able to work for other royal families while she's been on furlough? Or can well, she only work for this one? Could this she volunteer? Mean, there's a lot of unasked questions here, I feel. Very much I so. To give what, the... about if, what about if you booked a Deliveroo and the driver was Prince Philip? How would you, <laughs> how would you feel about that? There's a terrible noise outside. Um, but there you go. Yeah, that would be, that would be great. I, I, I would the whole family, and I do like the Queen, but the whole family would go up in my estimation um, hugely if they worked for Deliveroo. Uh, for Harry, it's probably only a matter of time, frankly, isn't it? it? Is, yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's 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 lost it that chap. Um, but yes, all right. Well, the Queen's back at work. That's good news. We're not sure about her furlough arrangements. Um, there we go. I wanted uh, to um, I wanted to talk to you about this outbreak of jokes by politicians that we've seen in the last couple of weeks as well because um, yeah. we had the other week we had Matt Hancock in the the House of Commons bar, didn't we? And he said, yes. I mean, you know, the tumbleweed is beginning to roll, <laughs> isn't it? Just at the thought of Hat Mancock making a joke in the first place, but um, but he said the drinks are on me but Public Health England are in charge of the payment methodology, so I will not be paying anything. Um, I mean, I, mean, I, I think the phrase soon. I wouldn't open with it is... is um, I think any joke that's got the word methodology in it, I think that's the first... That could be the first step, couldn't it? Um, I mean, yeah, no, I can see what he's trying to do, but I just yeah. think maybe give it, give it a year. Maybe wait until there's a vaccine. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. And then Boris Johnson apparently made a string of jokes at the 1922 committee, um, which was so memorable that people could only remember two of them. One um, was people will welcome the rule of six as an excuse to avoid their in-laws this Christmas. Well, he's um, got enough in-laws to do more than six, hasn't he? And number two was an off-the-cuff joke when Theresa May suggested adding business leaders to SAGE she said, he replied, we can't add business to Sage because it would make the name beige. Which, mm. um, <laughs> again, I mean, it's, it's you know... It's, I mean, it's that's not there, strictly true, is it? Because... Well, it would be B Sage, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or Sageb. Sageb, yeah. Yeah. Sage. Anyway. Good one, Boris. Um politicians aren't very good at telling jokes, are they? No, not really. Um, <laughs> if we're honest, they usually try and throw one into a conference speech here and there, don't they? A little gag, but it's usually very vanilla. Who was the um, guy who did the, the terrible thing from the Mikado? That I've got a little list. Who was that? I don't know. Was it Peter Lilly? Maybe. I can't remember. I mean, I'm Gavin thinking... Williamson's speech, that, as when he was Chief Whip... Oh yes, I'm, I talk about this quite a lot on this podcast, but it really was genuinely funny and very good, and delivered with this sort of camp horror 
um, you know, this sort of hammer house of horror kind right. of thing. It was extraordinary. What happened afterwards made it even more extraordinary because that was when <laughs> Theresa May coughed her way through an hour of horror herself. Oh, right, yeah. The stage fell down, that so-called comedian gave her a P45, etc., etc. Um that was uh, that was an extraordinary hour. So, uh, but that was funny. But I don't remember any particular jokes. It was more just the way he was sort of creeping around the stage, you know, like Christopher Lee or something. <laughs> um, Tony Banks, uh, who we've mentioned on this podcast previously, was was uh, he always had a few good jokes. Yeah. Um, Britain is heading pell mell towards the status of a banana republic, but without the benefit of bananas. <laughs> I think it's a good joke. A good uh, joke. John Major is now so unpopular, if he became a funeral director, people would stop dying. That was a good joke. Um, that is funny. <laughs> I do think the best joke um, that I have heard from a politician is probably, and, and he, you know, not not, rely, not renowned for his humour, was he? But do you remember the? 2006 Labour conference when Blair was handing over to Brown and I there do. was a big kerfuffle, wasn't there? Because Brown had made a speech saying Tony Blair is the greatest prime minister the country's ever had and all of this. And it's been a privilege for me to work with him. And Sherry Booth was was seen behind the scenes shouting, that's a lie um, at, um, at a, a sort of a TV that it was being played on. And the next day... Um, I think Tony Blair opened his speech by saying he'd like to pay tribute to to Sherry, and there was a sort of a ripple of ooh and all this. And he he said, uh, you know, thanks for your support down the years, uh, and at least I don't have to worry about you running off with the bloke next door, which I thought was a really good joke. You know, yeah, presumably yeah, not uh, written by him, but no, and also probably written by Alistair. But also, um, although actually yes. I think Alistair, I'm not sure Alistair was was Alistair still around then. I'm not sure he was. No, I think he'd gone by then. Um, but um, what that that is a funny gag, but it also completely took the tension out of the room. I wasn't there; I was in Rome actually. But it completely took the tension out of the room, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and I imagine again, you know, poor old Gordon Brown. He couldn't do right for doing wrong, could he? When he's when he, when he's nice to Tony Blair publicly, he gets a kicking for it, and Tony still gets off scot free by making a funny gag. You know what I mean? Um, but Sherry certainly not a not a woman that keeps her. Um, Keeps her opinions to herself, should we say? No, indeed not. Um, I mentioned Hat Mancock there, and obviously, ah. people have. We started calling Hat Mancock Hat Mancock on this podcast a long time ago. Well, we did. Um, I started calling Hat Mancock Hat Mancock in 2010. Wow. Um, when I'd been, I remember it very clearly, I'd been to interview him. I did a series of interviews with. Um, Dull politicians? No, with the new intake. I, I chose three of the new Tory intake of 2010 um, who I thought had a ministerial potential. Um, and do you know who the three were? Um, Hatmancock, Elizabeth Truss. No, not Truss. Go on. She, I think Truss was, was Truss 2010. Oh no, she was before that, wasn't I think she? she was 2005. Yes, I think you might be right. Um, Go on, who were the other two? Uh, Hat Mancock, yeah, uh, current health secretary, Pretty Patel, yes, current home secretary, uh, home secretary, and Mrs. Teresa Coffey, <laughs> oh. currently unknown. <laughs> well. Um, so there you go. I, I mean, I, I was that's three out of three for ministers, 
Yes. How bad? Coffee's Therese Coffee has got a a role, hasn't she? She's got a. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a minister, all right. She is a minister, yeah, in name at least. Um, um, so yeah, so I, I was coming back up on the train. I was going back home on the train after interviewing Hatman Cook, and uh, and I was with a photographer, and I said, "Huh, Matt Hancock, Hatman Cook," and that's that's where it started, actually. That's where it began. Although th- it's argued about on Twitter, and I'm not to say that someone might have called him that at school. They probably did. I'm sure they did. We yeah. certainly know that the Spads call him something much ruder. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, I'm sure his mum and dad went, ah, oh, Hat Mancock. Well, I'm um, not sure about that. Not well, sure. maybe not. No, no. Maybe not. But this is all leading up to, I mean, in, in recent days, Sean Keaveney. Do you like Sean Keaveney? I, I think he's my favourite. What, of the Seans? Of all the Seans, of all the Keaveneys. <laughs> I, think, I think Six Music, I think, I mean, it'd be, you know, I like, I like, I mean, I'm a dad. I'm an old dad, aren't I? I like... Huey Morgan show on a Saturday morning. Yeah, I like I like Radcliffe and McConey. Yes, like me too. Stuart McConey's Freak Zone and Freakier Zone, and uh, and during the week I very much like um, uh, and I like Craig Charles actually, and I very much like uh, Sean Keaveney during the week. Um, and he's called him Hatman Cock recently. Sadiq Khan, of course, called him Hatman Cock. Yeah, and this is all leading up to the fact that we've got a musical interlude because the horn section. Uh, the fine band, the horn section, have yeah. got, um, I've, I've now got a, a, a track um, uh, celebrating Hatman Cock. It's from their album, The Most Beautiful, Talented People in the Whole World. And here are the horn section with uh, Hatman Cock. If you spell the right Hatman Cock's name, Hatman Cock. If you spell the right Hatman Cock's name, Hatman Cock. If you spell the right Hatman Cock's name. Hatman Cock, if you spell the right Matt Hancock's name. Hatman Cock, Hatman, Hatman. You're not so, much of a DJ, are you? Not really, no. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I can only tell you that it's something that I've been playing around with for a while. I can't say that I definitely invented it, but I clearly did. Well, I mean, it's 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 become a phenomenon, Richard. That's it. It's you become can, a phenomenon, and Music. people do contact me on Twitter when it is when it's said, you know, somewhere else. People contact me on Twitter and say someone's stealing Hatmancock off you. It's everyone can use it. All right, it's in the public domain. I, I, I'm a bit like Tim Berners-Lee, right? Yeah, I've invented this thing that everyone loves, but now it's yours. It's yours. I don't want to make any money out of it. I just want you to love it and cherish it as much as I do and use it for good and not evil. Okay. Do with, do with it what you like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, but don't sell t-shirts with hat man on and all of that. And then expect, <laughs> and you know, cut us in. Yeah. If when I said didn't want to make any money, <laughs> we want it, but not from, not from our friends in the horn section. No, they were, br- they're brilliant. And you can buy that track. Yes. On Bandcamp, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So get, uh, get it bought. It's only 89p. Bandcamp.com. I think that, um, and it forward slash track, forward slash Hatmancock. Yeah. Horn <laughs> section right. with an E, by the way, isn't it? Yes. Horn with an E. Horn and uh, that, an was, e. that was very funny. I think I'm going to set that as my ringtone. Can you still do that? Uh, I think you can set, set as your ringtone, yeah. yeah I think okay. so. Do you remember when ringtones were like the reasons people bought new mobile phones? 
incredible. And you would yeah. get um, people would have um, comedy ones, wouldn't they? You'd be in the pub and you'd hear somebody's phone going, "It's the wife." <laughs> <Just> like that. <laughs> go, oh my god, who's that? <laughs> yeah, I never had, I never had that. But I, there was a guy at university who got this new phone. He was like, "Listen to all the ringtones," and it was like a hundred of these blinking things. And he would leave a he got, I really like this one. And it'd be like a minute long. Like, can you can you turn your sodding phone off? I've just put a quid in the jukebox and I want to listen to the wedding present, you know? Yes, absolutely. Who were those people? Who were those people? Right. Oh, look, who's joined us? It's Peter Kellner. Welcome, Peter. Steve, over to you. Peter, what a pleasure to have you on uh, on the New European podcast, obviously. You are a pollster, a political commentator, um, news, people will know you from Newsnight, people will obviously know you from numerous election nights uh, down the years. You've got a, a big piece in this week's New European, um, it's, it's a YouGov poll of Americans, isn't it? Why don't, you, why don't you tell us a bit about it, because it's not a, it's not a how are you going to vote on November the 3rd poll, but it is absolutely fascinating. Steve, that's right. Let me take you back in time a bit. Um, in 12 years ago, 2008, in the spring of the year when, which ended up with Barack Obama becoming president, to the run-up to the Obama presidency, um, you got asked a, very, a variety of questions in America on people's basic values and attitudes, on things like, I don't know, evolution, climate change, um, gay sex, um, abortion, issues like this, the things that sort of touch a a personal nerve in many people, whether you're on the liberal or the conservative side of the debate. And what we've done is to repeat those questions um, in the current campaign. So we've got a straight comparison between 2008 and these past few weeks. And uh, what we find is that, um, uh, that there are two quite distinct trends which appear to contradict each other. The first is that Americans are much more tribal. Republicans are more anti-Democrat and Democrats are more anti-Republican than they were 12 years ago. But on the other hand, there has been a slight trend towards a more liberal outlook. Now, there's a lot more to unpack there, but those are the big headline features. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's... The, 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 some of the findings are absolutely fascinating. And, you know, one of the questions is, how would you feel if you had a, a son or a daughter who married a, a Republican and the, um, the, the move from the Democrats, that so 20% of people in, in 2008 would have been somewhat or very upset. It's now 37%. Um, and uh, and it's moving the same way for the Republicans um, from 28% to, to 38%. And as you say, you know, that on this big poll, it, it does look like that there, that there is some good news for Joe Biden and the Democrats in that America is, is becoming slightly more liberal in its outlooks. But it, it is what jumped off the page to me was just that first one. And and America is just st such a hugely divided society and more and more polarised. That's right. I mean, let's take, let's take the marriage question. I mean, this is a really good way to get at um, how much people really dislike the opposing tribe. You know, um, uh, 12 years ago, as you say, you know, by, by quite a large margin, 
by around um, three to one in both amongst the Republicans and Democrats, they wouldn't said they wouldn't be too bothered if their son or daughter married somebody from the opposing party. Whereas now among Democrats, it's pretty well even. 37% say they would be uh, upset, 43% say they wouldn't, not much of a difference. Republicans, um, the move has been a bit less. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that you've got two things going on. One is there is an underlying tribal division, mm. which wasn't there before. And I suspect if one had asked this same question, you know, when I was growing up 40, 50, 60 years ago, um, even fewer people would have been upset because American politics was much more fluid. You know, people who would vote Democrat at one election would quite happily vote Republican as another. Um, and you've got these very big swings in presidential votes. You don't get that these days. You get some swing, but nothing like um, as big. But the biggest change of all has been you know, Democrats, I think, um, are taking a real, real hatred to Donald Trump. And therefore, when we ask the question about how would you feel if a son or daughter married a Republican, they're saying, I really don't want a Trump supporter in my family. And I think that comes through really very strongly. A similar move, but not quite as great. Most Republicans say, well, I don't want a li bloody liberal um, in the family. But the anti-Trump feeling, I think, is, is comes through very, very strongly. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, I'd, you know, obviously you couldn't have asked... Um, how would you feel if you, uh, your son or daughter married a Trump voter? Because, of course, you didn't ask that in, in, um, in, in 2008, and so it would have invalidated the, the, the point of this. But I do wonder whether that will move back. I mean, we know he's, well, I say we know he's going to go in four years, but you just never know. Um, just before we move on to the sort of the values and beliefs question, knowing what you know about polling and, and knowing what we knew about what happened four years ago, we know about what happened four years ago, does it feel right that that so many of us are very cautious about these polls showing Joe Biden with a huge lead in the popular vote and 7% leads in places like Pennsylvania, which I think everybody is saying is a, is a must win for Joe Biden? Um, I'm always cautious about individual polls. And, I've, and my 15, 16 years as a pollster uh, with, with, with YouGov, made me ever more cautious, uh, including about our own polls, because any in the, there are two potential sources of error in any poll. The first one is just pure random um, luck or lack of luck that, you know, a poll of a thousand people can quite easily be two or three points out um, just through random sampling variation. So if you've got, let's us say, you know, typically Biden on 50% and Trump on 40%, be a fairly typical poll now, an individual poll, it might be that Biden is 47, 48, he may be 52, 53. And again, Trump may be 37, 38, maybe 42, 43. And if you then, as it were, take the difference between mm. Biden and Trump, that doubles the potential error. So you might be a, a Biden leader of, you know, five or six points, maybe a Biden leader of 15 or 16 points. However, there is so much polling going on in America, um, so many polls, different companies, so frequently, that you can, you can basically squeeze out the randomness, because it is very, very unlikely that, you know, all of 20 polls published over two or three days will 
be unlucky in the same direction. It just doesn't happen. So we can, we can deal with the random error by looking at poles in insufficient numbers, and there are lots of poles. It's the second potential source of error that is the problem, which is if there is a, a design fault or if there is a mismatch between what a sample of Americans say and what a population does in practice. Now, four years ago when Trump won, the mythology is the polls got it hopelessly wrong. That's not quite right. You can divide up, and, and, and forgive me for giving a slightly long answer because I think it helps to understand what's going on now. You can divide up the 2016 polls into three groups. There are the national polls. The national polls were pretty good. So if you take an average of the national polls at the very end of 2016's campaign, they showed on a two-party split, um, Trump-Clinton, uh, Clinton on 52%, Trump on 48 mm. What was the actual result? Clinton 51, Trump 49. Clinton won the popular vote, not the electoral college, but popular vote. So the polls taken together were pretty close. Secondly, you take the majority of the state polls. And again, on average, the polls were pretty good, including quite a few tight races like, like um, Texas and Florida, for example. But the third group is where the polls tripped up. In those Rust Belt states, places yeah. like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, the polls expected Clinton to win narrowly. Instead, Trump won them narrowly. What was going on when the polls looked at it afterwards was that they, are, they were not getting enough um, voters who did not have a college education. And we know that people with a college education were much more likely to be Democrats than people without a college education. And that is fundamentally why they got those Rust Belt states wrong, because it because the big move to Trump was amongst white working class uh, people who were educated at school, but not beyond. And the polls simply didn't get enough of them. Well, this time they're getting the education right. They've learned from that. They will not make that same mistake. So broadly speaking, when the polls now show Biden eight to ten points ahead nationally, and five, six, seven points ahead in those key marginal states. I think that's probably about right. The one note of caution, I would say, and I say this from bitter experience of polling in British elections, is each election, we avoid the mistake we made the last time, but maybe we're making a new mistake this time. So um, I would now be genuinely surprised if um, Biden loses, I mean, I'm assuming there is no completely startling October surprise that comes out of the blue. But if, if, if nothing major happens in the next two and a half weeks to change people's minds, I think Biden will win reasonably comfortably. Well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm heartened by this. I'm, I'm counting no, uh, no chickens. I'm, I'm, certainly, um, I'm certainly interested when you... When you see uh, Republicans, uh, people who work for the Republican Party, saying that they are, you know, signing up people who have never, um, never voted before, are, are being registered to vote and stuff like that. Maybe it's bravado. Um, maybe it's uh, maybe we're, we're we're heading for for something seismic um, uh, on November the third. We'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, just going back to this. Absolutely fascinating poll. The, the second part of the poll is about values and beliefs. Yeah. Um, and people were asked things uh, about 
climate change. They were asked whether they thought the Bible's account of creation was right or whether the theory of evolution was right. They were asked about their attitudes to abortion, which obviously is um, is a, a really, I mean, it's always a hot topic in America, but but more even more so now because of what's going on with the um, with Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. So so what what did you learn from this? Because obviously the, there is a move towards a more liberal outlook, but still, when you take these two things together, these two sets of questions together, you you do see that most. Americans, well, I think um, I think most Americans, more Americans believe that um, the Bible's account of creation is right than believe in the theory of, of evolution, and they um, and they are um, also, um, you know, the, the the question about whether homosexuality is. A, I mean, thirty five percent of people believe homosexuality is a sin, and only thirty six percent of people believe that homosexuality is perfectly acceptable what else leaps out from, from um, here? yeah the, the thing that i think le leapt out at me was that the contrast between what the poll finds from ordinary voters and what you get when you look at the television pictures of, of trump and biden and the, what their activists are saying the you know a lot of the very activist more liberal democrats the um the, the, the evangelical um and conservative right of the republican party that on both sides, quite a lot of their voters um, do not belong to those those as value divides. So, for example, mm. and, and broadly speaking, something like, you know, depending on the issue, somewhere between uh, 20 and 40 percent of Democrats on any given issue will take the conservative um, uh, take the conservative view um, uh, on things like. Um, you know, creationism and evolution or, or abortion or, or climate change. Um, and equally, um, slightly fewer, but the non-trivial number, you know, often around 20% of Republicans take a more liberal view on the liberal conservative divide. Um, and so I think one of the, the big things is that the, although the tribal divide in terms of whether you identify as a Republican or a Democrat and how you feel about the other side, those tribal divisions have deepened. In values, it's not quite um, the same story. But there's a second thing, Steve, which is um, if one takes it to these, um, you know, the specific issue which may come up in the next few months, when we're likely to have a Supreme Court now with a 6-3 conservative majority, and two of the issues they're almost certainly going to face concern Obamacare, you know, me medical care for all, um, and abortion, and the attempts by conservatives to overturn the Roe versus Wade decision almost 50 years ago when the Supreme Court at the time said that women have a constitutional right in their early months to um, have an abortion. Well, on both things, the American public are quite clearly against change and it's not because they are necessarily all very liberal on um, abortion in particular but what we find is there's although um in almost half of americans either don't want abortion ever or take a <coughs> very restrictive it should only be used for example when the mother's health is in danger mm. the proposition before the court is coming from the purists the fundamentalists we think abortion should never be allowed. And so what you're finding 
is that you know, a lot of Americans who don't like abortion in, instinctively don't like it, but they think that the purist position is going too far. So recent polling shows that by two to one, Americans don't think the Supreme Court should overturn Roe versus Wade. And equally on Obamacare, um, this is now bedded down and although it doesn't fit in our values in because we didn't, Obamacare didn't exist in 2008, polling from 2016 showed that then a majority of voters did want Obamacare abolished. That's not the case. There's been quite a clear move now to saying, let's keep Obamacare. And you know, one of the things that's beginning to come out is it looks as if the swing away from Trump has been quite marked amongst the over 65s, the, you know, the gray vote, yes. silver vote. And it looks to me as if one of the reasons of this is a fear that another Trump presidency would make a mess of their access to affordable health care. Um, so, you know, if Trump loses narrowly, it may be that his attack on Obamacare has done him no, no favours. It is. A, I mean, it is a fascinating poll. You can read more about this in, in this week's New European, that all the figures are in there and, and commentary from Peter as well. Just just going back to the polarisation stuff that we, we talked about that, that's in the in the first questions. Do you see that kind of polarisation um, just as, as, as that, you know, maybe evaporating if, if Donald Trump does lose in America? Do you see that kind of polarisation happening here in Britain more and more and obviously you're talking to you know a, a public the podcast of a publication which was set up to to oppose um to oppose Brexit which of course was you know something which was voted for by 52 percent to, to 48 percent are we becoming more polarized in in the UK very interesting question I, I'm not sure of specific data on this but let me give you my guess I think you'll find a minority of Labour and Conservative voters would be upset if their son or daughter married somebody who supported the opposite mm. party. There will be some, and it would be, be a, you know, a significant minority, but I think it would be a minority. I think there would be much greater hostility if Leave voters were asked yes. about their son or daughter being a Remainer and vice versa. I think there is a much sharper um, divide in terms of the, the strength of feeling between Leave and Remain, these days, and between Labour and, and Conservative. You know, I may be proved wrong, but that would be my pretty strong guess. Yes. And um, I think that, I mean, I think that is a, a fascinating point. And when I hear Boris Johnson and more recently Keir Starmer saying that the, the argument is settled and, and over and we can all reunite again, I, I, I do think that that is um, wishful thinking on yeah, all sides. I, I mean, I'm say, I mean, it goes away from the the piece I've just done for the New European. Um, but, you know, the the whole Brexit debate is a moving target. We don't know whether, you know, by tomorrow night, we'll have broken off all talks and they're heading for no deal. I think there are going to be two critical moments which will determine the medium term. One is what happens to Britain's economy, prices in the shops, availability of, of, of fresh fruit, you know, investment jobs in the first half of next year. Uh, because if there's either a, a thin deal or no deal, there might be quite a lot of turbulence that may affect how you use. And secondly, as we get towards the next election, you know, the Labour Party in particular will have to decide where it's going to go on Europe, whether it's mm. going to say, um, maybe we made a mistake and we should at some point go back into the EU, whether we should have 
reopen talks on, on having a single market type customs union type relationship, whether we should join EFTA, you know, um, I think it's quite an open debate and public opinion, I think, will, will, will play a role. So, you know, I think this is a this is a moving story. But could I see come back before we lose sight altogether about America? Because um, there was sort of hidden in, in your introduction to that last question as to, you know, whether the tribalism in America is, is hardwired in. Now, you know, I, I think it's going to be really interesting if there is a clear Biden victory. And if the Democrats take the Senate as well as the House, whether the Democrats in Washington will be as tribal as the Republicans in Washington have been. You know, Biden has talked about wanting to reach across the aisle to be part bipartisan. Well, if he is more bipartisan and the Republicans buy into that and you get back to the kind of cross-party politics that was common in America, more or less throughout the 20th century, then that may then feed through to public attitudes. But if now the divisions between the Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate, if they stay as bitter as they has been, then I suspect the public tribal divisions will continue. I think it'll be one of the most fascinating questions about the first year, 18 months of a, of a Biden presidency. It is that is a, 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 gr a great way to um, end it. It's certainly going to be a, a, an amazing. The, the remaining three weeks of this campaign are going to be amazing, and uh, and who knows uh, who knows what 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 happens. Um, I did want to just close by by saying, I mean, we're expecting it to be a very memorable night. That of all the election nights that when we were familiar with with seeing you in the studio is there is there one election night that stands out for you as being particularly memorable or shocking or or whatever oh my goodness they, they each were remarkable in their own ways from 19, my first one in the studio with David Moore in 1992 yeah well when it looked as if labor might squeak in and the conservatives um held on i think the one um and then, of course, the dramas of the 2015 and 2017 elections in the SNP in 2015, and then, and then Theresa May losing her majority in 2017. I suppose the two, I, 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 in terms of on the night, the uncertainty of the night, the two that stick in my mind are 2010 and 2017, because in both cases, it wasn't clear till the following morning what the contours of Britain's mm. politics were going to look like. You, it's, it was touch and go whether in 2010 Labour might just hold on to enough seats to deprive David Cameron the opportunity to form a government. In the end, he did it with the Liberals. And Labour just fell maybe half a dozen seats short, but that wasn't clear until the Friday morning. And equally, you know, Theresa May, if she'd had... If there had been half a dozen more Tory MPs elected in 2017, her life would have all been a lot uh, easier. If she's done half a dozen fewer, she probably wouldn't have stayed on as Prime Minister at all. And again, we were waiting through to the Friday morning for those last marginal seats to come in, not quite sure where British politics was, was heading. And I suspect we're going to be... Uh... We're going to be, well, we're going to be, some of us are going to be up all night and some of us are going to be waking up on the Wednesday morning and and uh, and finding that it's not all been sorted out quite yet. Um, I'm sure we will speak to you again, Peter Kellner. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and, and, and sharing that with us. Pleasure, Steve.
That was absolutely fascinating, Steve. Great stuff, wasn't it? That was great. I was, I, I'm, I'm enjoying just sitting back and letting you talk to interesting people more and more, Steve. I think that could be a feature. <laughs> well, it does make a change, doesn't it? As, as they. Uh, oh, as you they see, say. I got, I get excited and then I butt in, and I, and, it, and it's just, you know, it doesn't make for good, for good podcasting. So it's just better to let the adults in the room have the chat, really. I think, isn't it? <laughs> sometimes um well that was was fascinating that was it was it was fascinating um absolutely you can find out more about that paul as you said of course in the print edition of yeah please do um please do take a look at that and um and you can also take a look at the, the 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 piece i've written as well um which is a kind of a sum of political cliches last week um i collected 30 or so uh, cliches, the things politicians say that that wind us all up. It was f- bewilderingly popular, I would say, um, and uh, lots of people joined in. Um, we've done another one uh, this week. There's also Peter Kellner's piece, of course. We've got Mitch Ben on saving the arts um, during the new lockdown restrictions. We've got Bonnie Greer on Trump. We've got Paddy Howie on the North and COVID. It's another great edition of the New European print edition it's on sale now three pounds more political cliches uh including uh one of my favorites this week we're straining every sinew uh, a lot of straining <laughs> credibility i really like that one uh, uh mancock by the way is a great fan of saying well that's an excellent question yeah, um, yeah which of I've course means that. will you stop growling at me if i pat you and tickle you on the tummy yeah um, you're a brilliant journalist <laughs> Yeah, I can't comment on a fluid situation. That's a good one, and which is good because obviously they're they're banning the northerners from drinking alcoholic fluids at the moment. Um, and my personal favourite, um, uh, that's above my pay grade. Which that's means, above my pay grade. I, that could be the answer to everything I'm asked. Which means I <laughs> won't answer that question until I'm prime minister. Uh, I think, and then we won't change horses in midstream. And who ah. who puts horses in a stream? What's the point of that? Anyway, there's a big long list of more of them um, in this week's New European. I wanted to ask you, um, before we do the Brexiteers of the Week, about yeah. a couple of things. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, they, they are sort of, they've been caused celebs this week on right-wing Twitter um, and then on left-wing Twitter. And um, they, they both sort of, you know, they relate to journalism. And, and I wanted to talk to a, a sort of political journalist about that. And obviously we tried to get somebody on, but... About Jerry Scott. You could have asked founding member of the New European podcast, Jerry Scott, come on. Who was, who was, who was on Andrew Marr the other who day. Who was on Andrew Marr. And I thought, dealt with the, the silly billies on Twitter very well afterwards as well. Oh, I didn't um, see that. Um, she was very good on Andrew Marr, was, was, was Jerry Scott. Um, she's come a long way as our Jerry, hasn't she? She's come a long way. And she had a very well-stacked spice rack behind her in her... That was it... the bit that I was most interested in, I have to say. I did begin watching it on, um, on my iPad. I then switched it to the big television so that I could see if that, see what spices were on there. Now, I've since inquired about... I was going to start a Twitter account called Jerry Scott's Twi- uh, Spice Rack. Yes. Um, but, I, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, because I didn't want to think I was making fun of it, because I'm absolutely not. And I inquired around the office about why Jerry might have a, a Spice Rack. Now, there's two things that we've got to say. Spice Racks are cool again, I'm told. Yeah. 
So that's good, that's good news. Never gone out of favour with me. I well, no, you kept right. yours We're back from from the seventies. It's still there. Yeah. <laughs> None of the spice has ever been used. Turmeric from nineteen eighty four. Yeah. So they're trendy again with uh, with you know millennials and and Gen Zers or whatever they're called. I don't know. There's a um, lot of new spices around, isn't there? Like uh, uh, what? Like Zatar. What about actual spice? That synthetic um, drug. Oh, there is... Yeah, imagine that if you had a rack for actual spice. I bet that's what's in Jerry's spice rack. Um, I bought something the other... I, I made a recipe the other day, or I, I, I sort of saw a recipe in the newspaper yeah. the other day, and I thought, that looks really good. And it had Hull Bieber in it. Hull Bieber? Hull Bieber. Is that like the is, Yorkshire Justin Bieber? I think it's it's <laughs> Justin Bieber's Yorkshire dad, yeah. It's actually a coarsely ground Syrian and Turkish paprika, also known as Aleppo pepper. Wow. Which Aleppo cool. pepper is a lot nicer to say, isn't it, than than um, than Paul Bieber. Do you know what I did last week? It's very I was good, cooking. Though. Go on. I was cooking I was cooking last week. I'll share the pictures with you, um, Steve. I was cooking last week, right? Um, I've started doing those ones where they send you all the ingredients and the meat and everything, so you don't have to buy it. Oh, yeah, great. And then you cook it. You still have to cook it. It's quite good fun. I'm not much of a cook. But also, when... So I'm learning how to cook a little bit, but also uh, you get just the right amount of ingredients, so you don't end up with, you know, a massive jar of whatever that you're never going to use. So I was doing that. Anyway, I was chopping up a chili, right? And I did that, and then there was an itch in my eye, and I rubbed my eye, and it, and it stings. I don't know if you've ever done that. And I spent like half an hour pouring, sh- with a shot glass full of milk, pouring it into my eye. It Ooh. was the most horrific pain I have ever experienced. It was oh, awful. It was awful. So I've given up on the cooking. Um um, I'm, I'm clearly that is, it's just gonna have to be takeaways for me. Prince Philip uh, can come around on delivery. It's just, <laughs> it's just too much. There's, there's, there's too much jeopardy involved um, yes. with with cooking, with chopping. I'm always cutting my fingers, sticking well, chili in my eye, and then it burns. You know, just yeah, delivery. I've got to say, it's you know, I don't know what how much cooking you did as a child and later um, on. I was I was very lucky in that when I was fifteen or sixteen, I was I started working in like cafes and stuff like you that. You were and, the guy who took the chips out in the hacienda. That's hardly a chef. I undercooked. Uh, well, you, you had to do quite a lot of preparation and, and stuff like that before. I, I, imagine, I didn't, yeah. I, you know, you learn it, You do learn the first thing. You know, the first thing you always learn is to, how to chop vegetables and stuff like that um, uh, carefully and and well, and how not to get chili in your eye. I would is say that, that is would, that like lesson one? That is kind of yeah. <laughs> First, first lesson. Maybe when journalism is over, I'll, I'll come over and do a sort of intervention with you. Um, that would be good. Um, so, getting back to these two things yeah, um, that, we want, that, that, that we were talking about, these two sort of journalistic things that people have been talking about, and have, we were saying with Peter Kellner, people are very polarized by these things. Mm. The first thing is Darren Grimes, who will need no introduction to uh, people who have been reading The New European, been reading my column, been listening to this podcast over the last um, four years. 
Darren Grimes being investigated by police on suspicion of stirring up racial hatred. It's over an interview with the historian David Starkey that he published on, um, did he publish it on his YouTube channel? I think yeah. he did. Uh, Darren Grimes, obviously, he was a Leave campaigner in the referendum. There was some controversy over that. Uh, he's been asked to attend a police station to be interviewed under caution. He published this podcast. David Starkey basically said that slavery wasn't genocide because there are still a lot of black people left. Um, he said that in in less polite and even more stupid and offensive terms than that even sounds. What is your take on whether Darren Grimes, whether the police are right to interview Darren Grimes about this? Well, firstly, Darren Grimes is an idiot, right? Um, there is no doubt about that. How and why Darren Grimes thinks he can suddenly just be a journalist. This is the first thing that annoys me about people who just think, oh, I'll just be a journalist. Right, Colleen Rooney put on her passport application she was a journalist. No, she wasn't. Someone rang her, a trainee rang her once a week, and she told her some stories, and she made it into a column for her. Mm. You know what I mean? Journalism is, is, is tough. It's a profession. It's not a profession. It's a trade, but it is a skill that takes some learning. And interviewing people is is not as easy. It's not just as easy as you made your chat with Peter Kelm the sound, Steve. I know that a lot of prep and research has gone into that, and a lot of skill goes into it. Darren Grimes has none of that. Now, Grimes himself, of course, has said, yes, Starkey shouldn't have said those stupid things, and I should have brought him up on them. And I think that is a pertinent point, actually. Um, and... No one comes out of this particular episode very well because Grimes is an idiot and Starkey clearly is, you know, we will probably never see him on our television screens again. But um, but if if I think that there is that, that is an interesting point. If Grimes had said, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you saying, are you really saying that? Are you actually saying those things? You can't say those things because of this, because of this, because of this. You know, then, then I would have. I, I, I don't think it would have got to this stage then, because he let it go, and he, his excuse was that he was in awe of this man. Well, that's not good enough. Journalists, you know, a journalist who's interviewing someone can't be in awe of them. You know, you can't be someone's fan. You've got to try and get to the truth. Now, other people will say, well, he should have cut it out. <clears throat> he shouldn't have put it out. It's a difficult one, that, for me, because I've interviewed Nick Griffin. Um, you know, should I, should I not have interviewed him? I asked him if he was a Holocaust denier. I asked him if he was a racist. I asked him what he thought of uh, Asian communities in the north of England. I asked him all kinds of things. So should, the problem I've got is that if, if someone, um, if you don't shine a light on these people, and by which I mean you allow them to exist in the, in the darkness, they become martyrs for a cause. And it allows certain sections of society to say that the media won't report on us, that, you know, there is a media blackout, all this kind of crap that we see on, you know, D-notices. The amount of people who tell me there's a D-notice or something on Twitter have got no idea what a D-notice is. You know, you hear this, is there a D-notice on so-and-so speaking, on Anne-Marie Waters speaking in press? No, no, there isn't. And they could never be interested in what she's got to well, say. Well, exactly. But what I'm saying is, if we can, if we do let them speak, they generally we give them enough rope, and they make themselves look like idiots. We only need to see that from, you know, that when suddenly when you know, the, let's look at let's look at um, 
Uh, Nick Griffin and the BMP is one is what is a, is a good version actually. Let's go with that. So when I was in Yorkshire <clears throat> as a young reporter, we had two or three BMP councillors, which was horrific for us. You know, it's horrific. How on earth has this happened? And one of the big newspaper groups said we will never quote BMP councillors. And my editor toyed with this. Um, we were a rival newspaper group, toyed with it. And I begged and pleaded with him not for that not to happen because I said they will become martyrs and their supporters will go, well, you never quote them in the press. This is a movement now and it becomes a thing. So we did, we quoted them. And within about two and a half, three weeks of them being elected, the wheels had fallen off the whole thing because they're not that bright and they're not politicians and they're not standing on reasonable policies. <clears throat> and there isn't any anymore. There isn't any anymore. So what I'm, I think what I'm saying is, and Starkey and Grimes are not a good example, but if we simply cut out things and we don't know about them, then they can grow and they be, can become more dangerous. Um, it is our job as journalists to shine a light in dark corners and to challenge these people. And I think if Starkey had been on Newsnight or the Today programme, or do you know what? Even this podcast, we would have said, that's disgraceful. What, you know, how do you justify that? We would have challenged him. Grimes isn't going to do that because he's not a journalist and he's an idiot. Um, however, what I would, what, you know, so that, so that aside, you know, we're to, as you said to the other day, Steve, when we were talking about this, we're talking hyper, hypotheticals there. On this particular case, why is Starkey not being interviewed by the police? Well, he is now being, he is now being interviewed by the police, I think is the, is the latest development, um, is the newer development. And he is saying... You know, Darren Grimes shouldn't be interviewed by the police. But yeah, I think I mean, that's, I, that's I think a very good point. There is a, the, in law, in law, the, the te- technically, um, both of them can be interviewed by the police. You know, yes. technically, technically speaking, Darren Grimes may have committed a crime um, by publishing it. And I think it's right. It's under the Public Order Act of 1986, yeah. which yeah. was brought in by Thatcher. It is using insulting language which you intend to stir up racial hatred. Racial hatred? Racial hatred. She's lovely, Rachel. Yeah, racial hatred like, is yeah, lovely, unfortunately. Like racial hatred. Um, um, racial but hatred, so which is likely to do so. So he has um, done, you know, he potentially has done something wrong by the letter of the law. But if I interviewed, you know, if I interviewed a politician, right, an elected member, for for a podcast and they said something stupid and racist and I then cut it out, I wouldn't be doing my job because it's the, it's right that people know that they're stupid and racist. Um, they, it, it's yes. got to be public information. I mean, it's a little bit different because they've been paid by the public where Starkey isn't, but I think people deserve to know that David Starkey is, you know, he's, he's saying things like that. Um, yes, I think the point of the broadcast, though, was to say that, I mean, Darren Grimes... I forget the the words that he used when he tweeted uh, about how this podcast. He he basically tweeted that David Starkey had been a, a long time hero of his, yeah. and he, they'd had a, a fascinating chat. And it was only later on when people, well, you know, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. It was only later on when he had listened to it again after being urged to do so by people that he went, actually, that's appalling. I didn't really catch what he said. And I, well, I, I mean, was, I, I was carried away. Now, I, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But what yeah. I think the point is, and I know that um, uh, law, um, 
my old law tutor David Banks on Twitter has been has been talking about this and saying that it's a chilling moment for journalism. I'm not quite sure I agree with him on that. No, I think I don't, he's wrong. and I don't. I don't. It's very rare for me to disagree with him. I can see what he's saying, and I can see that there's a potential for a slippery slope. But I think the law in this country is clever enough to realise that Darren Grimes is not a journalist. What he was putting out there wasn't really a journalistic product. It was it was just fanboy managers to get celebrity on. And yeah. then is completely all at sea when he tries to chat to him in the manner of a journalist. You know, it's a it's a little bit like me going and having a kick around with you down the park, Steve, and then and then being classed as a professional footballer. Um, yeah, I would be extremely worried. You know, were somebody, as you say, to do to to go and interview the leader of the the BMP or uh, and highlight racist views that they had made during a. a the, the interview or to publish that um, in some way, publish it on YouTube um, and go look at this appalling person saying these appalling things. And then, you know, you, the person who published that, the journalist would, would be threatened with prosecution or, or, or be, you know, being spoken to by the police. I think that would be terrible. What I think would be equally terrible and the other slippery slope that David didn't, David Banks didn't talk about um is the idea that we will start to have on YouTube and in other places, social media, we will start to have essentially lifestyle people, lifestyle pieces uh, where people are allowed to express views that frankly are likely to stir up racial hatred and they will go unchecked. Um, and these things will will just uh, not exist. I, I don't really know how I feel about this individual case. I've got very little time for Darren Grimes and absolutely no yeah. time for, for for David Starkey. I, I, I'm not entirely, my, my you know, personally, I'm not in sure that Darren Grimes did intend to, I don't think he did intend to do this deliberately. I, I, I believe him there. Um, and I think what David Starkey said, I think the fact that it's ended his career may be enough in, in this occasion. Yes, I um, agree. I think so. I think it's. Just, I, 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 I think the police have got enough on their plate, frankly, without having to worry about these two wallies. I mean, the right pair of some mothers do have them, aren't they? Especially, you know, Grimes, who everything he seems to touch turns into complete crap um and i'm sure Absolutely. we won't i'm sure we won't hear from grime uh, you know grimes is grimes will go away and do something else he's not going to be part of this part of this uh, part of this country's future by any means i'm sure of that and david starkey's had a long career and i think the fact that it has come to a shuddering halt is absolutely punishment enough for him um, yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely but you know there's an offense there um you can't broadcast and publish um, uh, racist remarks, grossly racist remarks. What David Starkey said was grossly racist, and and I think you know we've got to stop clutching our pearls. Um, the police, you know, I, I don't think again nothing. I don't expect anything to come of this, but you know, the, if somebody's made a complaint about this, then the police are duty bound to investigate it, and those are the reasons why. The second thing is. Um, Again, and Pete, uh, lots of our, uh, lots of new European readers have been very um, exercised about this. Keir Starmer, Steer Karma, I was about to say. The Steer Karma. We've got uh, another one. <laughs> well, Steer Karma. I did try and get that on the front of the New European a few weeks ago, actually. Um, Steer Karma, but um, 
but I think we, we, we decided it was a, probably a bridge too far. But there you go. Steer Karma is the Hatman Cock of Labour. Very good. 5pm Tuesday, Keir Starmer comes out for the circuit breaker. By 8pm... <laughs> sounds like Keir Starmer and the circuit breaker. Yeah. It sounds like a sort of 80s glam synth group, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's got the hair for it. He's got, I mean, he's got tremendous hair. A little bit um, ABC, a little bit visage. By 8pm... Laura Coonsberg, Beth Rigby, Tom Newton Dunn, who people don't know used to be the chief political correspondent of The Sun, I think, and is now on Times Radio, yeah. and Harry Cole, who used to work for... Is Harry Cole at the Mail now? Uh, he's um, at The Sun now. He was at The Mail on Sunday okay, until very so he recently. he replaced Tom Newton Dunn then. And he and started he, out. He was at the, the Mail on Sunday, and former boyfriend of Carrie Simons, of course. Correct. They were all quoting a senior government source uh, who said... Uh, and I think the senior government source, the hint is that it's Dominic Cummings, said, Keir Starmer is a shameless opportunist playing political games in the middle of a global pandemic. He says he wants a national lockdown, but he's refusing to back targeted restrictions in the areas that need them most. People are furious about this. Um, they are furious because they say it is not journalism. It is just parroting what the government say. People have said it is client journalism for the government um they say that the tory chair amanda milling used exactly the same wording in a tweet that came out just before laura coonsberg's tweet um are they right is this client journalism or is it just journalists reporting um on a news story i, I struggle with this one <laughs> I I've really do. Say, I, I, I struggle, I struggle with this. With this. I'm sorry, guys. If you, I think, yeah. I think what's happening. I think what's happening is, and honestly, no disrespect to anyone, because why would you? I don't know anything about how to be a motor mechanic or how to lay carpets or how to fly a jet or how to deliver a baby. Right? We all have our, we all have our trades, you know. And journalism, as I said before, is one. And the majority of people don't understand how it works. But because it's in our lives so much, I think a lot of time people quite rightly have an opinion on it. And that's great. So let me perhaps just explain what happens in at times like this. And in fact, I got a quote. I didn't get that quote through, but I got a quote sent through to me from, from a Tory source who clearly sent it to more than one um, journalist on, on Tuesday night in regard to uh, Steer Karma's um, uh, at press conference. That's what happens. So Dominic Cummings is a senior government source. He is speaking on behalf of the government and of the prime minister. So if Dominic Cummings had texted it to me, and we don't definitely know it was him, but if he had texted it to me, I would have done the same. It's not. And I'll tell you, this is the other thing. This is the other thing, and this is important. Laura who is a brilliant journalist, Beth, brilliant journalist, Tom Newton-Dunn, excellent, Harry Cole, all great. Even if you don't agree with the last two, I think Beth and Laura are very, very down the line. There's no, there isn't any favouritism there, from, from certainly from the BBC, but as well, I think Sky News are pretty much down the line because they've got to be because of Ofcom. Tom Newton-Dunn and Harry Cole's papers obviously have a political agenda, but they're good, these are good journalists. These are top-of-the-class top journalists here. If, I, if Keir Starmer's... Um, chief advisor texts them something they will quote a labor source a top labor source said this that is how it works in the old days it would have gone into a news story that you would have seen 12 hours later in a newspaper today 
news stories are written throughout the day on social media. It's a constant thing. It's almost like a, well, it is a live blog, Twitter, isn't it? Um, for all its failings. And I think because people are seeing it as just that one thing, then they are, they are going, or oh, they're just the mouthpiece of the government. Um, if they were to, you know, if, if, Laura and Beth. If, you know, if, if Laura and Beth had done, had, hadn't have said anything, but then you know, midway through their ten o'clock news report, I'd have said, and tonight a senior government source has said this. I don't think there would be the outcry. But also, and this is, and both sides of the political divide are whether it's Labour or Tory, or whether it's um, or whether it's Leave or Remain. The truth of the matter is that it is very easy to shoot the messenger. Um, and I get, um, I, you know, I get, I get called a Tory. I get people write to me and say, "You are a nasty Tory." And then Got other stop people sending those and, letters. <laughs> yeah, but it just, I just enjoy it. Other people tell me I'm a terrible left winger who, you know, should go and move to Russia. And liberal Democrats can't quite muster up the energy um, to write to write a letter, but. Um, what I'm saying is that journalists tend to be hated by everyone. And I tell you now that Laura Koonsberg gets as much stick from the right as she does the left. And um, so I just think, you know, it's, it's easy to, if you're angry with the government, then aim your fire at them, not at a journalist who has been briefed by a source, which they will have cultivated. And that's not easy. Um, not just because they're repeating what a source has said. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you, if you do, you're just not quite understanding. You're just not quite getting it. I'm, and I'm not trying to talk down to anyone. I'm really not. I'm really not. Because like I said before, I can't fly a plane or whatever. But you're just not quite understanding the process of it. I, I, I think that, you know, they reported what Keir Starmer said. Yeah. And then they reported straight afterwards the government's, a government spokesman's response to it. Yeah. just as they report every day something that Boris Johnson has said, and then they report a Labour spin doctor's um, response to it. Um, uh, and I think that is just part of the thing, you know. Um, I think those those four, um, those four, uh, certainly three of those four are seen as, be, as belonging to the right. I, I, and, and I agree with you that Laura Koonsberg is, um, is getting an extremely bad rap um, and stuff that has Laura Koonsberg uh, attached to it just seems to be she seems to be quite toxic for a lot of people on the left um, I think Listen, she's doing, I saw, a, I she's doing a job I think that was a WhatsApp message that was sent to yeah. sort of members of the lobby and yeah. those four were the ones who repeated it retweeted it in, in effect in full um, but everybody got it other people you know summarized it and stuff like that i, I think i'm it's... not sure exactly which um i don't think it did go out to the whole lobby i think that there is a uh a select I group think, i think there is yeah because because <laughs> i didn't get it okay <laughs> and i'm in that group but um and that that group isn't really used by um it, it, it i mean there's been stories on this the lobby whatsapp group you know yeah. there is some some shady sort of thing. It's not like it's usually who's going down the red lion or, you know, it's, it's kind of that sort of thing. Um, 
rather than rather than anything yeah and government quotes don't go in there they tend to they it'll be you know journalists are selected and sometimes you're in sometimes you're in there sometimes you're not i mean i don't tend to be because um because my lobby card is on a on a regional basis you know and they don't that they don't they know that we're apolitical they don't need to influence us so um I guess Laura and Beth are obvious ones, and I don't know. I don't, I'm sure other people got it as well, but they're just doing their job. It, it's not some great big conspiracy. It's not. No one's pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. Laura Koonsberg. I saw Laura Koonsberg at Labour conference, and she had bodyguards at Tory as well. But she had an armed bodyguard at Labour conference. This is one of the uh, one of the best journalists, one of the best broadcast journalists. Of a generation, and I, th- I can't understand how anyone could think that she is promoting right-wing views on the BBC. It's just not true. And if she was, she wouldn't have been political editor for what now four years. She would have been gone by now. The processes the guys at the BBC have to go through to ensure that they are not in any way um, falling on one side of the fence or the other are extreme, extreme. And uh, she just isn't. So anyone who thinks she is. Is seeing it through their own, you know, tinted glasses, and we all do that. It's fine. I've, I've, you know, I've watched Newsnight before and thought, well, why did they lead with Farage and not, you know, why did they, why did they do it that way? It's all fine. But we remember the ones where we're aggrieved, and we forget the ones where, you know, the other side's aggrieved. I think, and um, it's perfectly human to do it, but there is, there's nothing underhand going on here. I can assure you. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Are you all assured now? Reassured. <laughs> please be assured. Uh, and please be assured that shortly we will name a Brexiteer of the week. Ah, excellent news. We'll be back after this. Brexiteer of the week. Welcome back, uh, Steve. It is time to crown a Brexiteer of the week. Many candidates this week. Let's start with Darren Grimes, who we were talking about just a minute ago. Yeah, who? I've got no idea. Uh, Darren Grimes, we talked about him a second ago, fuming. He's fuming that the BBC won't cover his complaints about being spoken to by the constabulary. um, When he says loads of other people are covering the story, um, and the Times made it the subject of a leading article. And you said, well, if the Times, it's good enough for the Times in a leading article, why aren't the BBC covering it? I really wonder whether Darren Grimes had read the Times leading article in question before he tweeted that, because it said Darren Grimes had suffered humiliation, and I'm quoting here, he had been exposed as naive, deeply unserious, and incapable of behaving with even the minor degree of responsibility required of a figure of mild public renown. Uh, <laughs> I think that's known as a cell phone, Darren. That's um, brilliant. He should, I mean... It's great, that, isn't it? I hope that, as much as I don't like Darren Grimes, I do not wish him any ill, and I hope he has a long and um, happy life ahead of him. You know, yeah, hopefully I don't, out, don't, you know, I disagree hopefully with him out on of every, the, almost everything, but yeah, I'll bear him no malice whatsoever. On him. But when the inevitable does happen, and it is inevitable that we all one day will will die, and when Darren, when that sad day comes for Darren, I think mild public renown should be on his gravestone. A figure of mild public renown. That yeah. is perfect, yeah. Uh, David Amos, I don't think we've had him in before, but he's been he's been annoying me for, for several years now, many years. 
Uh, the aptly named David Amos, uh, whose surname is A-M-E-S-S, um, he's been reported to the Parliamentary con the Commissioner for Standards, and he, I don't know if you can, you'll be able to spot this subtle reference uh, to his forthcoming book that he slipped into PMQs the other day. He said, next month, a book that I have written called Eyes and Ears, A Survivor's Guide to Westminster, will be published, and part of it covers Brexit. He then went on to ask a question about Brexit, and Labour say, well, this was, you know, PMQs, getting a question at PMQs, is an opportunity for you to advocate for your constituents and instead you used it to gain more publicity for your new book. You could make uh, financial gain out of it. And the official guidance they, they pointed out said that such an interest is wholly personal and therefore it ought not to be pursued by the member in proceedings in parliament. So basically you can't say I've written a book, um, it's really good. Uh, <laughs> That's brilliant. However, I mean, David Amos, if he wants to make a noise about publications, I don't know why he's not talking more about his previous publication, which was a profile of working class Tory MPs. It was called The Party of Opportunity, and it had a long contribution in it from Marc Francois. What, what um, I mean, I, you know what, this is hilarious, I think. And um, what, but, I mean, you could see, we're talking about slippery slopes, so you could see this being a slippery slope, and suddenly MPs are endorsing products Yes, exactly. Uh, do you remember that brilliant scene in Wayne's World where he says, "We will not be sponsored, Wayne," and then he's like got a like a Reebok tracksuit on, and then he goes back to Wayne, and he's like drinking Pepsi really that's slowly right. or whatever. And he says, well, "He says, well, that's your choice," and he says, "Yes," and it's the choice of a new generation holding his holding his Pepsi up. I Marvelous. loved, I loved Wayne's World. What a yes, brilliant it was film! Very, very good. Could you imagine? Uh, you know what, 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 what MPs would endorse what products? Oh goodness me! Boris could come in and then stand up and say that's an excellent question, and then just like rub brill cream through his hair, and he's got like a proper sort of Gordon Gecko look all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, what else would we have? Maybe um, uh, Reese Mogg would uh he would i don't know start wearing a, a barber jacket or something i don't know you know this is well if he, if he start if he if he came in with a with a monocle and announced i've just set up a business called moggy's monocles and look at these um there you go or maybe he came in riding a penny farthing or something like that you know um that would be good i think Hat Mancock should stay away from making tiny hats for, for um, Mancocks. Um, I don't want to see that at the dispatch box at any point. Um, uh, Hancock said, I've just launched a new app and I want to see your photos. <laughs> still, the uh, most, still the most horrific thing I've ever seen on my phone that Matt Hancock wants to access your photos. No, you don't want that. <laughs> No one wants that. Tell us, tell us, new European listener, what products would you like to see people, politicians endorsing? Um, that would be uh, that would be remarkable. Talking of endorsements, remember um, noted country life salesman John Lydon, who is better known as he was in the Sex Pistols, wasn't he? Who were brilliant, and then Public Image, who were for a bit, were even better than the Sex Pistols. They were the first, great. Public the Image. First two right? albums, two and two and a half albums, are absolutely amazing. Um, big interview with Barbara Ellen, um, who did a lot of writing for the New European I like in its early Ellen. days. Um, yes, I miss Barbara Ellen's writing. Um, she's great. Um, 
He did an interview with Barbara Ellen. It was in The Observer. He said, Donald Trump is the only sensible choice now that Biden is, is up. Um, Biden is incapable of being the man at the helm. And I've got to say that, you know, this does this kind of choice does take me back to 1977 when John Lydon was one of the driving forces behind kicking Glenn Matlock out of the Sex Pistols, who was their major songwriter and an accomplished musician, and replacing him with Sid Vicious, who had very cool hair, and his bass playing was of such a high standard that they just had to leave his amplifier turned off when he was on stage. Um, John Lydon also said um, he loved Brexit still. He said the British working class have shown they're not going to be dictated to by unknown continentals. And I always like to remind people when John Lydon says anything about Brexit that in 2016, he said leaving the EU would be insane and suicidal. There will be no industry, there'll be no trade, there'll be nothing, a slow, dismal collapse. It's ludicrous. Uh, there you go. Talking of ludicrous, Nadine Dorries has tweeted... <laughs> If herd immunity existed, measles and chicken pox would have been wiped out years ago. There is no such thing as herd immunity. Um, Nadine Doris should know better. There is such I know a that's thing. nonsense. There is such a thing as herd immunity. Herd immunity, with the help of a vaccine, wiped out smallpox in 1977 when Nadine Doris was a trainee nurse at Warrington General Hospital. Herd immunity is when a... a, a contagious disease isn't it doesn't have the potential to spread exponentially rapidly due to most people having been vaccinated it doesn't mean that it disappears completely um and um what is this uh, woman's name mean alviz dr mean alviz an nhs doctor um replied she said measles needs to have a vaccination uptake of 93 percent or greater for the possibility of herd immunity to kick in we've never been close that's worldwide obviously um but she did say that measles vaccinations have saved 21 million lives worldwide in the last 20 years and there is nadine doris a health minister saying if herd immunity existed, measles would have been wiped out years ago. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. But the Brexiteer of the week is Nigel Farage. And I've got an email from Nigel Farage this morning, and it, the, <laughs> the title of the email was The Great Con, which I thought, and it said, Nigel Farage, The Great Con. Um, and um, to which I, I tweeted about this earlier, and Philippe Auclair, the great French uh, football journalist, um, sports journalist Philippe Auclair um, tweeted um, was Nigel Farage talking about himself in French and I think you should uh, if you don't know already you should go and look up con in French um, Nigel Farage has launched a new financial advice newsletter called Fortune and Freedom uh, it says you'll get the truth about your money behind the headlines, jargon and spin, intelligent insight in plain English about the threats to your money and how to avoid them. Its slogan, this um, financial advice newsletter, is, is it's time to take back control of your money. And take back control, of course, is a slogan popularised by Dominic Cummings, isn't it? And the official Leave campaign, Nigel Farage had nothing to do with that. He was still rabbiting on about the Turks. Maybe they are the threats to your money that he's talking about. Um, I've got some, we've got some sort of hints about what they are going to be talking about in editions of this financial advice newsletter. Uh, why gold could be the number one asset to own for the next decade is, is a title of, uh, of one of them. Um, and they're also talking about cryptocurrencies and stuff like that. And 
Um, I don't know enough about this, um, so I will just um, I will just um, leave you with something that Martin Bamford has written about this. He Martin Bamford is the host of an investment podcast, the Informed Choice Radio podcast. He's a chartered financial planner. He's a fellow of the Personal Finance Society. He's the author of three best-selling books. Um, about investment they're called the money tree brilliant investing and how to retire 10 years early he knows stuff about financial advice Uh, he has written Nigel Farage is not a financial advisor Nigel Farage has some experience before (laughs) before politics as a commodities trader on the London Metal Exchange trading commodities has little relevance to the world of financial planning and investing Launching the newsletter, Farage and his partner, Nikolai Hubble, great name, talk about some incredibly high-risk speculative investments. They refer to the benefits of holding gold. As a non-income producing asset, gold is arguably not an investment and certainly should not form more than a tiny percentage of a typical investment portfolio. I get the feeling that we will be talking more and more about Nigel Farage's fame and fortune uh, sorry, not fame and fortune, fortune and freedom newsletter um, in the weeks to come. But he's the Brexiteer of the week. Fortune and freedom. Do you know what we should do? We should take a tenner, or, or maybe more than that, like 50 quid, and invest it exactly the way Nigel tells us to. I think you're, I think I, I may be ahead of you on this oh, one. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I may be ahead space. of you already. This time next year, I shall be a millionaire. Uh, and no longer doing this podcast. I'll be doing a podcast only for fellow millionaires. Um, <laughs> that's uh, it. That's it, you know. Um, number one in the books, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. What should the listener do right now, Steve? Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, and I certainly did, um, uh, Peter Kellner was great, um, and I, I think this podcast is growing from strength to strength. Um, if you did enjoy it, so please subscribe. Please leave us a nice review, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts uh, or, or iTunes. It really does make a big difference to our reach. You can buy the print edition of the New European in shops now. It's £3. Go to our website, theneweuropean.co.uk. Um, there are two deals. 25 quid for 13 issues. That's saving you uh, £14 um, over six months or you can get a rolling subscription six pound a month for the first three months then eight pounds a month thereafter you'll be saving at least four quid a month there uh if you go to tneshop.co.uk you can get um branded new european uh and rejoin and remain and european flag face masks you can join our facebook readers group you can just like us on facebook uh follow us on twitter at the new european Follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. It's S A N G L E S E Y. Or follow me at Porritt, P O R R I T. That's it, folks. We will be back next week, of course. Until then, Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go. <laughs>
From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.